Hello everyone and welcome back to Footprints. In this episode, we'll be delving into Bath's social history, exploring the world of work and housing from the Industrial Revolution right up to now in 2023. We'll find out about the building of one of the most praised housing estates in the UK with Mark Batterham, who many of you will know from attending his walks during Bathscape's Walking Festival. Later on, we'll walk around Twerton High Street with local artist Diana Ahmed and hear about her vision and project to improve her neighbourhood. But let's set the scene. We'll start with Stuart Burrows. Stuart has been the director of the Museum of Bath at Work for the last 30 years. In a nutshell, the museum celebrates the city's commercial development since Roman times. Before delving into its history, Stuart begins by describing the world of work in Bath right now. There are a lot of small creative businesses, IT businesses. Retailing is an important part of the city's economy. The educational provision is a major employer. You know, there are two large universities in Bath. There's a large regional hospital in Bath, which is worth saying. And then there are those businesses that are like ourselves, you might say, at the Museum of Bath at Work, which are concerned with, as has been going for centuries, the provision of accommodation and services to people who are visiting. It's worth remembering that at heart, however the city looks now and however it's looked over the last 200, 250 years, at heart, Bath is a provincial market town. It's been a marketplace for agricultural produce generated by its hinterland. For most of the last 2,000 years, people working in the city or its surroundings more more. Um, sensibly are working in agriculture they're working on the land they're not producing a great deal you know like um, iron founding or furniture or anything like that the development of the spa particularly in the 18th century has the city explode really its population increased dramatically the time when cities in the north of england are developing as manufacturing centres you know, Manchester or, you know, cotton and wool, Bath is growing quickly as a kind of proto-resort. So there's a lot of people employed in that. One of the things about the development of rather more typical industry, manufacturing, and the great age of factories, which begins at the beginning of the 19th century, is in Bath a lot of those industries have their origins in either supplying the construction industry in the 18th century or the provision of goods and services for visitors. An example of that is the great 19th and 20th century engineering and metalworking firm of Stothert and Pitt, Stothert and Pitt has its origins as a domestic ironmonger in the 1780s, supplying metalwork to the building industry, in particular things like metal drain pipes and iron railings 
for the front front of those sort of Georgian terrace houses that prevent people falling down those open basements and from iron founding for that kind of thing and supplying iron goods for that kind of thing you know these firms develop into much larger industrial concerns in the 19th century A lot of these firms that have fairly humble origins, as they develop and get bigger and turn into manufacturing concerns, they need more and more land. And I think this is where you get, in Bath, firms moving from the centre, as I think is is fairly typical. They move from the centre of the city to where there's land where they can expand. And the, and the, the problem with Bath, or one of the realities of Bath's topography, is that there isn't a great deal of flat land. And by the beginning of the 19th century, you know, in particular heading west from Bath, you know, so heading in the Bristol direction, between what's now the upper and lower Bristol roads, on either side of the River Avon, there's flat land, undeveloped, where these small firms could develop into much bigger ones on these open plains. And the Stolten Pit Works, you know, by the end of the Second World War, it's the biggest single employer in the area, biggest single uh, manufacturing employer, I should say. It employs about 2,500 people in engineering of every kind. It shares this riverside ribbon, this this floodplain area, with things like the Bath Cabinet Makers, which is the factory equivalent of these cabinet making concerns. There's a gas works in Bath. Bath has one of the world's first gas works, which opens in 1818. And it's on that flat area where the railways are built in the 19th century. And both the Great Western Railway, which runs north, and which runs, sorry, east to west, and the Midland Railway, which came in from the north, are built on that area. So you could say, you know, that most of the small businesses begin in Bath, and as they get bigger, they move west out onto the uh, the areas of what will become Oldfield Park and Twerton. Twerton is an interesting suburb of the city, in the Middle Ages, I mean, it was already a manufacturing centre, would you believe? On the River Avon, in the village of Twerton, there are four water-driven mills, which is quite unusual to have so many so close together in quite a small area. And these water-driven mills are initially for grinding corn, in the Middle Ages, Bath is famous nationally and, and to an extent internationally as a place for the production of fine quality wool, wool and cloth. And Twerton is a place where the cloth is processed in water-driven machinery. Come the 18th century and into the 19th, you know, these small water-driven mills develop or rather are developed into large wool processing factories and by the middle of the 19th century you know there there are there are four large factories which although they're driven by water they've got steam power so it's quite an unusual place 
in the mainstream of the city's development because you know here's a here are trades manufacturing trades that have got nothing to do with the tourism aspect of the city or its market function they've got more akin to the textile producing towns of west wiltshire places like trowbridge and bradford on avon for example twerton's on the very edge of the west wiltshire woolen industry And the introduction of machinery for the production of wool and cloth at the end of the 18th century sparks off riots in Twerton. One notable incident, which was in December of 1797, the mill owners are threatened with violence for the introduction of machinery which will put people out of work. And um, the local magistrates call in the local militia. And if you think this is at the time of the Napoleonic Wars, just before they properly kick off, and um, they call in infantry and uh, uh, cavalry, and they had field artillery defending the mills on the Lower Bristol Road. Hard to believe, uh, because they were expecting an attack, a mass attack, actually, of discontented wool workers who in the end don't really turn up but it was quite a quite a moment you know at the very end of the 18th century Bath and the elegant Georgian city at it at its edge uh, there is a, the threat of industrial violence it's 20 years before the Luddites you know we got there first right here The improvements to the Avon under the auspices of the, the Avon Navigation Company, you know, is absolutely critical. In the age before railways, you know, the waterways are the quickest and easiest and cheapest ways of transporting bulk goods. So there's always been a great connection between Bath and Bristol. When they built the Great Western Railway, you know, it's, to link London and Bristol, Bath ha just happens to be on the way. Bristol is, is such a dynamic centre, commercial centre. Uh, it's exporting capital, you know, in the Bath direction. And a lot of the 18th century developments in the city are related to investment from the Bristol direction. So there's always been a very close connection. Um, in the 1720s, a project which is funded in, in large part by the Bath entrepreneur Ralph Allen, is for the improvement of the River Avon between Bath and Bristol, the removal of obstacles along that length of the river, which will enable large cargo vessels to come up to Bath. And in 1729, the project is complete, and large vessels are coming up to what they call the inland port of Bath, it's not often called an inland port. All the goods that are coming through the port of Bristol from the continent of Europe or from what will become the United States or from the West Indies, you know, all of those exotic goodies which can be resold to the visitors to the city, all those construction materials, you know, things like timber from Scandinavia, you know, people tend to think of the Georgian townhouses, the construction of the building stock, as being everything to do with Bath Stone. You know, it, they 
look as though they're entirely made of bath stone. But most of these houses have got lots of wood in them. They've got lots of brick in them. They've got, you know, they may have um, ceramic tiles as time goes on. The iron I've mentioned earlier, one of the first consignments of goods that come to Bath via the River Avon are deal planks, that is, floorboards that could be used in the houses. Firms like Stollett and Pitt, just to come back to them for one moment, they start supplying the domestic construction industry. So they move from supplying drain pipes for houses to supplying iron goods for the canals. Then they supply iron goods for the railway building industry, which comes a generation or so after the canals. So all of that construction materials and, you know, cement mixes and that kind of thing, that they're supplying them. Then later on in the 19th century, they're supplying goods to all the expansion of ports and harbours, you know, because as steamships start to replace ships of sail. And then in the 20th century, firms like Stolten and Pitt are supplying goods for the road building programme, in particular, the building of motorways. So as you say, you know, firms like Stolten and Pitt make their money out of supplying these sort of successive waves of infrastructure building, where each one sort of succeeds the other by going faster. At the beginning of last year, we started a photographic project where we contacted local people in the city at work in 2022 to ask them if they'd have their photograph taken in their workplace. And one of the things that, it, you know, the penny dropped, really, because after having set upstairs a lot of what goes on in Bath is, you know, creatives or you know, tourism, is the fact that there is still manufacturing going on in this city. There's a lot of it, but it tends to be at a craft level. It tends to be small businesses that where there's only one or two people. So whether it's, you know, pottery or whether it's making hats or whether it's printing or whether it's making um, theatrical props or tailoring, you know, there's plenty of it going on it's just you don't notice it because these people aren't working in great big buildings with smoking chimneys. They're working in small little businesses, making things to a high standard at a craft level. And if you'd like to see that photographic exhibition, along with some amazing reconstructed workplaces and workshops, it's all beautifully exhibited at the Museum of Bath at Work in Julian Road. The museum opens again at weekends from 18th of February. Now, there are people in the world who, when they see something they don't like, they don't complain. Instead, they get on and do something about it. Undeterred by obstacles, passionate about her local community and a woman with bucket loads of energy, Diana Ahmed is one of these people. Diana wasn't happy with the depressing state of her local high street in Twerton, and so she started an organisation called People for Community. One of her projects was to produce a public piece of art with local school children, 
which is now proudly displayed in the High Street. We're stood at one end of Twerton High Street. We're outside your lovely piece of art that you've done with Year 2 pupils from Twerton Infants and Year 5 pupils of St Michael's Junior Church School. So looking down the high street, what can we see? We've obviously got the betting shop, and then what have we got? We've got the betting shop, we have the high street, and then we have Little Lost Robot, which is the new art hub of, obviously, that's here, which is fantastic. Then we have McColl's, which will, I believe, become Morrison's. Then you cross over the road, and you've got the education, Bath College Education Centre. Then you have Jimmers, the barbers. Then you have Rachel's Twerton Charity Shop. And then we have the Time Bank, which has been fantastic and helps and supports and does lots of projects in the community. Then we have Boots. Then we have the Funeral Parlour. Got a bit of everything. And just to set it in context, behind us is Inex Park and above that is Bath City Farm. Oh, yes. And near here is Bath City Ground. That's right, it's just behind here, Bath City FC, yes. I am a local resident and currently I've been working or setting up our grassroots organisation called People Our Community and it was kind of born out of the lockdown. The lockdown hit the local area really hard and what I saw was this very run-down area. So I just thought, what can I do as an artist? So I have to do art, art is what I do. So I just started uh, talking to local organisations and talking to the schools and out of that was born the first or the second public art in the high street. So let's go and see the piece of art that you made happen. Everyone said to me that would be graffitied in, in, in the first week. It hasn't been touched. Yeah. Do you know why? Because of the connection within the community. Everybody knows somebody in that, in that piece of artwork. So oh. that's why I think it stayed intact. Yes. Even though I paid extra for graffiti gloss. <laughs> oh, did you? <laughs> it's graffiti gloss. All right, let's have a look at it. Describe it for me. So, um, obviously, Twerton's renowned for its working class roots. And um, in the 18th century, there was a big industrial revolution of industrial uh, textiles, which we had at the Twerton Mill. So it was one of the places to come, actually, for your textiles. But along with that, obviously, you had child labour. So in the Zoom assembly, I was telling the children about, you know, that the average was like seven, eight, nine. I said, can you imagine that you've been to work since six o'clock this morning, picking up bits of fluff in the textiles, where there's like all this noise, and I was going, ah, no. And one of the information that I found out is that the woad that they used to use for dyeing left a blue tinge so people would know that you come from the area so I asked them to do self-portraits and this is what all the blue is about the blue self-portrait faces and on the outside we have all these wonderful gorgeous mixed medium flowers which are all about the Inox Park which is around the corner where they used to hold flower shows. And every day I come along and children are pointing and now they're getting older and saying, oh, I'm 10 now. You know, but it's wonderful and it stayed here. And, um, and I think what's good that I love about it is that it's historical and the story from the image, you know, it goes all the way through the community. It's really beautiful and that blue is gorgeous with the bright flowers framing it and it's called we love twerton high street and funnily enough the wecker grant is called love your high street 
one of the wonderful things about Twerton, there's this misconception that it's as rough as houses, you know, which it isn't. What is it like? <laughs> it's really diverse. On any given day, you can meet very interesting, diverse characters. And when I was putting this artwork up, you know, I really got to know the community. And I got to know people that, you know, have lived here all their lives, you know, and uh, told me what it used to be like in the 1950s and the 1940s. And we've just got this wonderful art hub as well, you know, that's fantastic. How so long's that been there? It's literally been here, I feel, about four months, just before Christmas, and uh, it's fantastic, you know. It's very, very, very positive for the community. I've been here, like, since the shop opened, so I know everybody right now. So, yeah, I'm enjoying it. And, and what's the high street like? Does it bring many people down here? Not really at the moment, no. It used yeah. to be busier before, but right now, no. You can see there's only a few shops, not too many takeaways or cafes, to get the people in to make the street busier. Takeaways, if you want to have like any, any sort of food except McDonald's far away from here, or more shops, that's make it more busier, yeah. We used to have the co-op, and the co-op used to be the hub of the centre, of the community. Everyone used to go in there because there was a post office, and it was a real meeting place. Um, but because of the development that didn't happen in 2019, it's no longer there. So it's really, yeah, really kind of estranged everybody, I think, in the community. Tell me about housing here. Well, most of the social housing has been brought up, which obviously, you know, in the... Manufacturer in the 80s, fantastic, which is okay, but obviously no social houses have been built since then. And the houses that the people have bought are now been turned into student housing and multiple home letting. So I used to live five minutes around the corner in Albany Road. When I first got there in 2008, it was completely full of families and everyone knew everyone. One chap who lived um, across me, David, he was born in his house. And he was like 70 and he was born in his house. Since 2016 to 2023, the whole street is now student. We need really good social housing for the next generation of Twerton because um, people are growing up here and then they actually can't afford to live here. You know when they say don't always uh, judge a book by its cover, you know. The community spirit here is fantastic. So. If you've got some money, come down and start investing and support this area. Thanks so much to Diana. And if you'd like to contact her, you can find her details in the show notes. Diana talked about the need for more social housing in areas such as Twerton. And in our final feature, we explore an estate in the south side of the city, just above Twerton. On one sunny January afternoon, I met up with Mark Batterham, who took me on a walking history tour of the post-war Morlands estate. This estate was built at the start of a golden age of social housing, when for the next 34 years Britain would build around 126,000 social houses every year. The design of the Morlands estate has been praised by architects and planners for its emphasis on space and light. The Bath Chronicle reported how the living rooms of the houses will face south and have a sun terrace outside. When this estate was built, four out of ten British households had no fixed bath. Well over a third had outside toilets and under half had a hot water tap. 
So these new houses must have seemed luxury indeed. And we're standing here on the entrance to this local authority estate, which is one of the loveliest local authority estates um, probably in the country, in my opinion. It's a really special place, and it's the first council estate planned and built in Bath after the after Second World War. Um, the reason we're standing on this junction here between Hillside Road and Cotswold Road is this is where the interwar private sector housing sort of ends, and that's where the new, new local authority estate begins. We're actually looking here at a prefabricated concrete building and it's now Hillside Community Hall and it was actually a British restaurant during the Second World War and it was opened in 1943 after the Bath Blitz but there was three in the city of Bath. You know, people could come here, buy a hot meal, eat with other people, probably quite good, quite good quality food but not, not much money, it's fantastic. Um, enterprise and and now it's, it's still here to come and look at it's not a British restaurant anymore it's a community centre but it's still very much part of the community so we're now looking down Hillside Road and on Hillside Road here this is where some prefabs were built so the prefabs were sort of temporary structures built after the Second World War and the period immediately after the Second World War for a sort of four or five year period there's about 160,000 built across the country in total they were single-storey, two-bedroom, similar layout. They were made in the, the same factories that had been churning out aircraft for the war effort, you know, were repurposed to, to produce these um, prefabs. There was such a dramatic housing shortage after the war. Three-quarters of a million homes had been bombed or badly damaged. Of course, there'd been no, next to no construction because the focus was obviously on fighting the fascists, not building homes. So there was a huge housing shortage, so we needed some accommodation pretty sharpish. So these prefabs were made in these factories. Bevin was the Minister for Health, their remit included housing. Um, Bevin really wanted high quality housing for people after the war. He famously detested the prefabs because he, he dismissed them as rabbit hutches. They weren't good enough for the people, but you know, agreed to their construction on a temporary basis through gritted teeth because the grim reality was there were so many people living in unsatisfactory conditions and housing was needed sharpish. Just to set a bit of context, 1939, the outbreak of the Second World War, almost just under 60% of people were still living in private rented accommodation. Council stock was about 10%. So, you know, a typical situation maybe after the war um, was told me actually by, by my mum. She lived in private sector accommodation with her brother and her, her parents, my grandparents, along with another family. And there'd be, so be multi-family households. That would be fairly typical, really. So and my mum tells the story, my granddad went for an interview for a council house. He'd got his best kit on, went for an interview and was absolutely delighted when he was given a, a, a council house in the late 40s. So... So the main driver, though, was the, the bombing, the blitz that destroyed so many people's homes. Yeah, for the, for the prefabs, I'd say, yeah. I'd say the, the construction of the local authority housing estates probably had roots further back than that, really. We saw, um, Pommy, you came to um, a walk on a previous walking festival event up at Southdown. I did. Uh, which is always in the south of the city, another lovely estate that was built in the late 1920s. Uh, so there'd been a sort of growing... The role of local authority, acknowledgement that local authority public housing was needed, really, because the, the private sector just wasn't really doing it. The way we started to think about how we live and the public health concerns, so Britain's chief planner during the 
1940s, Patrick Abercrombie famously described Britain's cities, the city centres, as worn-out machines now. Um, and what we saw were these, you know, ribbon developments, and they were just seen as not particularly socially cohesive, they weren't sustainable. We needed something better, really. So this momentum had been growing for a while, I would say, not just since uh, the Second World War. So we're now on Cotswold Road and we're looking at rank of houses which were the first rank of houses to be handed over from the contractors to the City Council um, in 1947. These houses were built for rent, there's about um, just over 200 in total in the estate. Flat sun houses actually there's a mixture and this road actually Cotswold Road we found out was actually built by German prisoners of war. Now we're going to walk up to the central green space in the estate called Willow Green. So here we are on Willow Green which is the central green area in, built into this estate. It's quite interesting that this is a, one of the major features of how these new estates were planned and if you think about the old ribbon developments there's a real feeling for space here. Well I think this is a really good example of the Moorlands estate of what's called the neighbourhood unit neighbourhood unit was a concept developed in the 1920s and the idea is that you have a fixed number of people within a, a specified area because um, the, the larger city is 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 overwhelming it, we need to break it down into manageable chunks we're, we're returning to these ideas now in contemporary planning these ideas of the 15-minute neighbourhood for example which we're seeing now but this is really visionary at its time this is a quite a small estate and it was quite it was too close to Moreland Road to plan in many shops really but normally on a neighbourhood unit you would have shops planned at the corners to give a bit of contact to the neighbouring district so it wasn't too insular so they even thought of that so it's very clever. Wow. Um, but the other thing that's planned into this which isn't so obvious and I'm going to take you to now is some green spaces which were children's playgrounds and supplementary gardens which allotments basically and behind the houses so we're going to go and have a look at have a look at those um, and, how, and have a look at how they're being used now oh my word that's a huge green area right in the middle of all these houses dogs tree planting has been yes, going on here that's right, yeah yeah, got some apple trees here. I wonder if that's yeah. to do with Bathscape. Possibly, yeah. yeah. They've <laughs> re very recently been put in these uh, series of fruit trees. So the space we're in here is um, sort of set behind the house. We've got the houses all around and then we've got this big green area which would have, like I say, would have been children's playgrounds or supplementary gardens allotments and when it was originally planned. And we've got this lovely tree in the middle. And then in the uh, time-honored tradition, we got, we, some people have got a couple of football goals so you can have a kick around as well. So it's a fantastic space here for the local kids and, 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 the, and, and the whole community. It's really. so safe, isn't it? It's nowhere near the road. So we're coming out now, up a little track. We're almost at the top of the hill. We're almost yes. in the woods. Yeah, yeah. So we're on the corner here of Moorfields Road and Chantry Mead Road. We're looking at some houses over there on Chantry Mead Road and one of them was the final house 
handed over to the local authority and the initial um, completion of the scheme and it was handed over to Nye Bevan. Wow. And Nye Bevan stood on that uh, wall that we're looking at now and gave a speech to the assembled masses and dignitaries and um, proclaimed how proud he was of moorlands and estates like this and their uh, record. We know that at various sort of conferences that Bevan would go to, he, he, would, he would brag about the Moorlands estate. And uh, so as a result, it, would, it achieved national fame and he, he was very proud of it. Oh yes, this is a quote from Bevan around the, around the same time, which is, um, sums up the attitude at the time really. Was, he said, we, we shall be judged for a year or two by the number of houses we build. We shall be judged in 10 years time by the type of houses we build. So that's what, that's what they were getting at. You know, they wanted really good quality for people. So the houses are set back from the street and you've got these green apr aprons in front. Some of them are quite deep, like on Chantry Mead Road. And they've used a few architectural tricks here, which work really well, um, sort of projection and recession. So it's not just a single line of, of housing. Yeah, they're beautiful, aren't they? The houses go up the hill. Yeah. Each one is set forward from the next as it goes up. Yeah. So you get different angles. Yes. So we're coming back down the hill yeah. to Willow Green. Yes. And the other thing is here, right here, you know, you've got this beautiful view right over to Lansdowne. Yeah. We're on Moorfields Road now and we're looking at Moreland's Infant School, but it's a really interesting very attractive building, the infant school that we're looking at, and I think it's a really interesting e example of post-war public architecture. And I think it's, this is certainly was inspired by modernist architecture. It was opened in 1950. Um, they had two open days, and they had a thousand people come to each wow. open day. It was hugely popular because the people came to see this and just thought, "This is fantastic." I mean, not only is the building interesting and and, and light and airy, but it's also set within these lovely grounds with these beautiful trees. So it was, you know, it was understandably extremely popular. When this was open, it was very popular amongst the people who came and admiring the sort of um, latest designs and the light and space. But um, there was, in some quarters, there, there was outrage about all this money being spent on working class kids. They were not decidedly unimpressed. And one of them, uh, Councillor Thompson, is speaking to a meeting of Bath City Council in uh, December 1949, so just before the school opened. He decried what he saw as the lavish nature of the school's furnishings. He said, we're not living in times of enormous prosperity and to teach children these extravagant ways which these delights are bound to give them will make them discontented with their homes. Still that old notion of got to be content with your lot. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but while we're stood here, if I may, I just, we could just see um, uh, on the other side of the road here from the school is a, is a monkey puzzle tree. And there's a great story about when Nye Bevan came here in 1949, the very early months of 1949, so it still would have been winter. Um, he, he opened this, uh, the, the final house of the estate at the top of the hill there at Chantry Mead Road. And he's walking down here with his entourage. Uh, and uh, there's <laughs> outside one of the houses, the one just past the monkey puzzle tree, was a chap called Joe who was sat outside... <laughs> 
sat outside his house in his string vest smoking um, and I had stopped and, um, and asked Joe about his experience of moving into the estate and what it was like and it was many of the stories that Bevan got from Joe that he would then recount at later conferences in, uh, nationally about the estate so we mustn't have, you know we could talk about these grand figures and that are involved we mustn't forget you know people like Joe I think we should have a plaque for Joe as well I mean not least for sitting in his string vest in January and February <laughs> That's fantastic. Good for Joe. That's a lovely story. Yeah. Okay, so we've come to the end of our journey. Back to where we started. Just to finish off, there's a great book by John Bowton called Municipal Dreams. One of the things Bowton writes about this period is he says that what had once seemed radical, even utopian, became mainstream. So I think that's a really nice way to finish. And what we can see here is some pretty radical progressive stuff becoming mainstream for, for the people in need of housing. Thanks so much, Mark, for showing me around. It's absolutely brilliant. You're welcome. Nice to see you. Well, that's it for this episode of Footprints. Thank you for joining me. And don't forget, you can listen to all the previous episodes anytime you like. Please share as widely as you can with friends, family and colleagues. And for more information on Bathscape, visit the website, bathscape.co.uk. We're so grateful to the National Lottery Heritage Fund and players of the National Lottery for supporting our work. Footprints was hosted and produced by me, Pomi Harmer, and I'll see you next month. <laughs>